Oi, oi, I'm Jimmy Bullard and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hi, Bully. Great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by Scott Schillen with Kindness. To be more like Scott, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler show, become an official sponsor, get bonus content and grow the show today. Grow the show if you know for Joe and Tom for everyone. Oh, spread the word. Have you heard Joe Marla's show? Joe Marla's show. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe. This is Tom. What have you noticed about the studio, Tom? It's a bit hot. We've both taken our shoes and socks off. Not what I was looking for. Okay. What do you see on the walls? Black blocks of foam. What shapes? Rectangles. Right. Did you know (laughs) that not every square is a rectangle, but every rectangle is a square? Is it not the other way around? What's the definition of square? It is a four, exactly (laughs) the same sized sides that form a square. Whereas a rectangle (laughs) is two sides the same length and two sides the same length. (laughs) Isn't it? Hang on, Ryan's giving me the actual fact. According to Ryan's laptop, all squares are rectangles. What did you say again? Yeah, not every square is a rectangle, but every rectangle is a square. So according to Ryan's laptop, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. What an opening. All squares are rhombuses, but not all rhombuses are squares. All podcasts are better (laughs) Better than than this one. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we get a guest on? Please, immediately get a guest on. Our guest today is Chris, and he is a bomb disposal specialist. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much, Joe. It's good to be here. Did you expect Chris to turn up in a massive suit, Joe? You know, like the ones in uh, Hurt Locker. Oh, you haven't seen the Hurt Locker, have you? <laughs> That's a great start. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, can you describe the suits in the Hurt Locker and possibly also your actual working life, please? Yeah, yeah. The, the suits in the Hurt Locker, they, I suppose they look a bit like an astronaut suit. You've seen yeah. an astronaut, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, a, <laughs> like a green You've one. You've seen an astronaut, haven't you? So <laughs> I'm only joking, Joe. No. Yeah, like a big astronaut suit. And they're all uh, they're armoured Kevlar and steel and stuff. And uh, very claustrophobic, yeah. So heavy? Heavy, yeah. They, they weigh about... I did a marathon in one once for charity, which is the, the, the most stupid thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> Not done it again, I presume. No, no, funny old thing, yeah. no. Um, and yeah, they're about 80 pounds, and then uh, you carry about another 100 pounds of kit as well. Thought Madness. They Thought they would... Oh, no. Thought they would have cost more than that. Oh, t- <laughs> So you need to redeem yourself with a very good question straight away. Yeah, no, I, before we went and jumped in with the, the proper serious question, I felt really bad, actually, from my semi amount of, not from my yeah. semi amount of research that I've done. I felt bad just introducing you as Chris, a bomb disposal specialist. I feel like I've really undersold who you are. I'm, I'm would not, you, yeah, would you like to introduce your actual self? Yeah, I'm Chris, a bomb disposal specialist. Yeah, that's the. I mean, I'm a father of two kids, married, and uh, that's about it, really. I'm not really sure what else there is to introduce. And and you've been a bomb disposal specialist for how long now? Well, I joined the army when I was 16 in 1989. I've been doing bomb disposal for about 25 years. Yeah. Was that always the thing that you went? Cool. Yeah, I like the sound of that. No, it's really joining the army to avoid prison. <laughs> yeah. No, I joined at 16. Um, didn't really have many prospects, to be honest with you. When I was 21, I went to Sandhurst to the military academy and became an officer. And then um, I saw a demonstration there of a bomb disposal officer doing their thing. And I thought, I quite fancy that. And a couple of years later, there I was in Northern Ireland, cutting my teeth with the IRA's bombs. And then, yeah, an unusual career thereafter, really. And it says here, you, you've just returned from a 14-week trip in Iraq as well. So you've mentioned Northern Ireland years ago. And now you've recently been in Iraq. Why, why are you out there then? Well, I left... Um, I left the army after about an 18-year career. About three years ago, went back into bomb disposal with an NGO, Charities, 
And I've uh, been working in Iraq, Syria, Libya, and then back in Iraq for the last year. So I do usually 14 weeks out there and then come back home for a couple of weeks, leave, and then go back again. <sighs> Joe, this is nuts. Well, what, what's going on out there to then be... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Is this no, years ago old bombs yeah, or new bombs that have been... There's always conflicts in Iraq. You know, it's, it's a mad place. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's the cradle of civilization, Babylonia, all that sort of stuff. But it's, um, you know, the most recent conflict. We've had two wars there. Britain has been involved in two wars there. Um, but ISIS, really, that was the most recent one. And they, they kind of got smashed by an Iraqi coalition and an international coalition in 2018. But they, they produced bombs on a, you know, a gargantuan scale. It was massive. They're everywhere. So improvised explosive devices, we call them. And they're all over rural land. They're in towns and cities as well. So um, the uh, Iraqi armed forces deal with them and then loads of charities. Guys like myself go out there and, uh, yeah, we're still clearing them. There's still tens of thousands to do. So let's say, Chris, uh, that Joe, for um, bizarre reasons, there's been some terrible administrative cock-up and Joe is out with you in Iraq and you get reports of an IED. As Joe travels with you to the location, what happens next? Well, if we survive the car drive, because the most dangerous thing in Iraq is driving in a car... They're, they're mad at driving. And they, you know, they'd forgive me for saying that because they oh, are crazy. Right. I'm sorry, I thought you meant because there's loads of wives and shit. No, here, just, just, just really, really bad drivers. drivers yeah. Right, excellent. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. So when you get to the area, we have teams of, uh, of searchers, as we call them. They go there and they, they go out with metal detectors and, and the other equipment and they mark up the, uh, the devices or boxes around the devices. And then you and I would go forward, Joe, and uh, we'd go and do a quick confirmation with the metal detector. And then um, get that on our belt buckles. And uh, funny old thing, you get a paintbrush out and you paint the sand, literally, because you're exposing the, uh, the device. You know, you've marked out exactly where it is. There might be a metal pressure plate, like, a, you know, literally two, two bits of metal come together, it goes bang, and then a big main explosive charge. And you work your way down, exposing it all until you find the detonator, and then you start taking it apart, basically. Right, and you just say it as casual as that, do you? Yeah, we get there, we lie on our bellies, <laughs> brush it down, and that'd be it. Like, Crack what on. the fuck? <laughs> Sh- like, back to the equipment bit that we spoke about earlier. Sh- are you not, like, head-to-toe in something that can, like, protect you? Right. If I'm honest with you, the uh, developed countries, you know, the Western nations, the British military, they all have the uh, the Hurt Locker suits that you're, you're now familiar with, Joe, yeah? Thank you, yep. And, um, and they have robots, and they have, you know, multi-million pound equipment. Um, really good cutting-edge stuff. In places like Iraq, they just don't have the resources, they don't have the money, the funding. And the scale of the, the IEDs that are out there, the bombs that are out there, you know, they need so many charities to help as well. There just isn't the funding. So, no, we go in a bit of body armour. If the device goes bang when you're on your belt buckle next to it, there's going to be nothing left of you. You know, you will be vaporised. So, um, yeah, we go light, go slow and low, and it's a pair of snips, a paintbrush. The metal detector is really useful, obviously. That's great. And 25 years of knowledge and experience, obviously, that all helps. I spoke to a friend of mine who knows a thing or two about bomb disposal before this, and he was saying, oh, you want to ask about the suits that they wear or can wear as a bit of protection, but ultimately, and the way he described it, I was like, that's really morbid. He went, ultimately, if you're that close to it and it goes off and you're wearing this suit, the only thing it's going to do is make sure that you're in one piece, but you'll be dead. And I went... What, what do you mean? He was like, well, you know, at least it'd be nice that you're still all together. And I'm like, what the fuck? What's the point of wearing the suit then, mate? Well, we might be nicer for a, the funeral or something like that. I'm like, right, I think we need to move quickly on from that one. <laughs> um, he also brought up that, did you say you got a team? So you'll yes, have a yeah. team. You always work in teams, yeah. And you first described us as going out to find them. Yeah, so... It depends from country to country. The way we work in Iraq and Syria and Libya, the teams that work against sort of the Islamic State bombs, certainly, the, the recent years, they'll go out there every day and they'll be searching for these devices. And sometimes there's nothing there, um, so we don't need to go. Other times they'll find something and they'll mark it. And then we'll go to whichever teams have found something and uh, we meet them in a, you know, in a central sort of admin area and uh, sit down and have a brew and a cigarette. And then they say, right, follow me. Um, it's over there. So it's a team effort in terms of, you know, you all have different roles and responsibilities, but the operator um, is the one that goes forward. It's what you call a single man risk. And then you go and, uh, you know, get on your belt buckle and go and do the business. Let's say you're on your belt buckle next to Chris. You've got your little paintbrush in hand. Am I got other clothes on other than just my just belt? Just a belt buckle because it's quite warm in Iraq. Right. Yeah. So I'm You've got sun cream on your arms. With a belt on <laughs> and a paintbrush. Yeah. 
this this doesn't sound right. Daisy never had that fantasy. I'll put it to her next time. Thanks. <laughs> Body yeah. armor as well. You, you got a, oh, okay, like yeah. a bulletproof vest. Yeah, okay, yeah. Fine. So how you finish it? As you first uh, move your paintbrush over the sand and you're seeing wires exposed and bits of metal, what's going on in your head? Um, die Hard. <laughs> one of the lethal weapons. Did that have a bomb in it? Yeah, we'll go with that one. That's what I'm envisaging. And then I go, oh, there'll be three wires when I get down there. One will probably be Earth, yeah, which is uh, <laughs> yellow and green. With a bit of brown. Yeah. And one will be red. Danger. And one will be blue. And then I'll go with my snippers because I'll have, I'll have my paintbrush and my... Snips. Snips. And then I'll go red one, blue one. It wouldn't be that. And then I'll go, it wouldn't be the red. I think they're going to double bluff me. Oh. <laughs> Do you cut that one? And then you go with the blue and you go blue. No, nah, fuck it. And then you go back to the red. And then because I'll be sweating so profusely, it'll just drip on it and <laughs> it'll blow up anyway. So I'm fucked, essentially. I should have just spent more time going, oh, this would be nice, and then actually just walked directly on it. Just jumped on it. Rather than... Go out of the middle band. <laughs> rather, than, rather than do that one. Um, Chris, what is the most... Da- like we, we, we are talking lightly and having a bit of laugh with it, but what is the most dangerous situation you've actually found yourself in where you've gone, shit? There was one day where my team, when we were in the army, actually, back in 2004 in Iraq, you know, during the insurgency and all that sort of stuff, We'd gone out in the morning as a team and dealt with a, um, an IED in Basra in southern Iraq. First thing in the morning, did another one at lunchtime. Then our robot broke down because it's 52 degrees Celsius as well. So you don't really want to be wearing that bomb suit in there. We had to go and get that fixed. And then we did another one in the evening. And we were quite, quite knackered by that point. And it was about quarter past 11 at night. We were driving back. It was my first day with the team because normally you have two weeks to acclimatise. And we didn't have enough bomb technicians, any, you know, enough, enough operators. So... Um, I've been with them for four days and it was my first day out with them. So we're driving back quarter past 11 at night and uh, really quite tired because it is quite fatiguing, you know. And um, cut a long story short, we got ambushed. So we got brassed up, rocket propelled grenades, you know, assault rifles shooting at us. And uh, my driver was driving sort of one handed, you know, one hand on the steering wheel, the other hand on his shoulder. And there's all these bullets coming through the window. I presume that was because he'd been shot. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought... Not to look cool. Well, I just thought he was as cool as a cucumber. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was absolutely... T- it's the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me, without doubt. But he's driving along, yeah, one hand, and I'm thinking, this guy's as cool as they come, you know, but obviously he'd been shot in the shoulder. And then I got shot in the leg. And uh, it's the first time I'd had to uh, engage with the enemy, you know, engage as in shoot them, not engage in witty conversation or anything, you know. So. <laughs> it's a bit late for <laughs> All right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind if we just chat out a bit? Yeah. I've got some wife. smokes here. Let's if talk you want about it. this, shall we? Yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah. Yeah, so so that was that, um, and we all we all got out of it and survived. But it was just uh, absolutely surreal. So yeah, that was that was one of a number of crazy situations over the years. And you thought to yourself, oh yeah, I'll go back and potentially do that again. That was back in what two thousand and four. Yeah, but it was like the first day. Imagine the first day with your team. You know, a nice sort of team building icebreaker, really. But <laughs> bonding, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. What What's it like to get shot? I was so so you get really really scared basically because. There's a, there's a whole sort of physiological response when you're when you're under extreme pressure. The frontal cortex you normally depend upon for your everyday function is inhibited, so you can only rely on your, your limbic system, your muscle memory at the back. So if you've done something again and again and again and you're under extreme stress and pressure, you just do it because it's in your muscle memory. But things like an ambush, even the military don't practice those realistically because you can't have someone just shooting you with rocket-propelled grenades and stuff. So it's an alien concept, so you freeze. It's quite terrifying when it, when it happens. And I've just gone off on one there. I can't remember what the question was now. What's but... it like to be shot? But yes. You're, you're still Thank answering you. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got this sort of adrenaline coursing through your veins. I was an officer as well, obviously. So I've got, you know, the, welf- the welfare of my blokes to think about as we're all getting ambushed and shot up. Um, so I'm on the radio telling them what to do, you know, um, and, uh, and trying to return fire at the same time as well. So I didn't actually feel it, is the, uh, the long answer to the question, until... We got to uh, what we call an emergency RV, uh, you, know, you know, emergency lay-by, if you like, where people aren't shooting at you. And um, Dan, my number two, was holding his, uh, his shoulder, you know, and uh, he said to me, um, boss, do you mind if I have a cigarette? And for some reason, I was going to get all anally retentive and say, we're not allowed to smoke in military vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> so I am... Um, you can't... I was like, Sorry, mate, you can't smoke in it. You can definitely get shot. You can be shot as many <laughs> times as you yeah, want in this vehicle. The... But if you fucking put a cigarette in your mouth, <laughs> no, we're going to get fined. Could be bad, No, boy. no, no. Be... We're not having it, yeah. So 
Um, I said, you know what, I think I'm going to have one as well. And then I suddenly had this guilt trip and thought, well, I better at least unwind the window, you know, and obviously there's no window left because it's all being shot to pieces. <laughs> so we had this sort of little giggle to ourselves at this surreal situation. And then uh, um, he said, I've, I've been shot because I thought he'd just been driving a cause of cucumber. Mm. And then um, I was like, you know what, I think I have as well. And uh, I looked down because I, I then felt burning. So it's a bit of burning, really, unless obviously it goes through your body and, you know, rips all your insides out and it's a really nasty wound. But this was just a little sort of, granddad tell your grandchildren type wound and it went half in my boot and half in my leg so it was just the heat of it was burning the leg so it oh. cauterized the wound as well chris i i wonder with your job like the way you've described you got into it sounds quite sensible but i wonder if there is a certain mentality of people you work with who are also bomb disposal specialists whereby you're seeking if it thrill is the wrong word then there must be an ability to cope with intense stress and pressure and almost take a satisfaction from it in all seriousness, I suppose, the British bomb technicians go through a psychometric testing and psychiatric evaluation. And they're not looking for someone who's an adrenaline junkie or the stereotype that you, you see in the Hollywood movies, I guess, whatever that is. They're normally people that are happy um, in company, but equally happy in their own skin as well, you know, in private. They can speak in front of an audience or, uh, or, or be on their own. They're usually people that sort of can solve problems, I guess. They're not wilting willows, but they're not adrenaline junkies either. So, you know, they might do a bit of sports parachuting, but probably not skydiving. They might have a motorbike, but not sort of, you know, crazy um, track racing and that sort of stuff. And um, you don't really join for the sort of romantic fantasy about, you know, I'm a thrill seeker, I want to be a, a bomb technician. You kind of drift into it almost in some respects. But you tend to stay because, yeah, it's quite a nice feeling when you, you know, you go out to a bomb scene one day and it's carnage and you see dead people and all that sort of horrible stuff. And then you manage to go back another day with your team and you manage to stop the bomb from functioning. So, yeah, it gives you a warm and fuzzy, definitely. What's the, what's the biggest bomb you've ever defused, both like physically or dangerous scale-wise? <laughs> the biggest one. I suppose, yeah, a car bomb, really. A um, couple of hundred kilos. And you could ask the same question about what's the biggest bomb I've ever messed up as well, because I made it go bang accidentally too. But you're still here. Yeah, so we do it, do it from a distance if we can do. Right, So I use a robot yeah, for that start, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Normally you'd use a robot if you can do, and then you get the bomb suit on and walk down there and attach hooks and lines and all that sort of stuff, and you pull it from a safe distance, and then you only go down there and do it by hand if you're, uh, you know, it's the last choice, last course of action, if you like. But um, there was a car bomb outside a hospital back in 2004 as well. Um, it wasn't a good year for me that year, to be honest with you. When, <laughs> when it's outside a hospital... Um, any sort of risk of mass casualties, you don't send a robot down there. You don't go down in the bomb suit. You just run down there and, uh, and do the business, you know. And um, I thought, there's, there's no way I'm going to run down there. I'm just not brave, you know. So uh, I thought there must be another way. So I jumped over the wall, went through the, uh, the window in the hospital and then told them all to get to the back of the hospital. So, you know, cause a bit of distance between them and the car bomb. And they didn't speak any English, you know, so I pulled out my pistol, waved it around and shouted a lot. And that was like an instant translation tool. They went to the back of the hospital, all good. That worked, yeah. And then I went back out the window, back to my, uh, my number two, and he sent a robot down there. And I said to everyone, right, you're just going to hear a small pop as we shoot the boot with a water jet to pop it open. And I was going to remove the main charge from the, the firing circuit, if you like. So you, you, you're going to open the boot of the car using a jet of water? Yeah, it's like a shotgun, but water rather than, you know, whatever's in a shotgun cartridge, you know. So um, I want to know what it's like to be shot by a water shotgun. Put that on the list. Yep, sorry. Add that to you. <laughs> we could go and try it all later on after the <laughs> Joe, yeah. So, um, yeah, after telling everyone to get under hard cover on the radio and all that sort of stuff and, uh, and saying we're just gonna, you're going to hear a small pop as we shoot the boot open and then this almighty explosion. And they'd wired the, uh, the firing circuit. You know when you open the car door and the courtesy light comes on or you open the boot and the boot light comes on, they'd wired it, the firing circuit into that. So as soon as the boot opened, it set off the whole, uh, the whole device, basically. So if I'd gone down as I was supposed to, done it by hand, if I'd opened the door... You wouldn't be here. Exactly. You'd have to be interviewing someone else, yeah. Can I ask a, a technical question here, Chris? Do you not shit a brick? <laughs> I, think, I think it's like anything, you know, the first, first time you... Sorry, um, it's, it's literally not like anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's the direct opposite. Right, OK. The first time, yeah... Um, yeah, after 25 years, you kind of know what you're doing, really, you know. I, I, in all honesty, I actually find it the most calming thing that I do. If I'm hunched over a device, you know, it's very elemental. Plus, you know, if you mess it up, you're not going to know about it anyway, are you? So That sounds like the sort of <laughs> mindset I have about flying. 
tell me more. Well, I used to be scared of it, and I'd spend the entire flight, like, take off, being like, oh, my God, we're going to die. I'll be up there, be like, oh, my God, we're going to die. We'd be coming down. I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to die. Then I just went, I'm spending all this time worrying about something that may or may not happen. And, you know, if it goes down, I can't do anything about it, so I might as well just accept I'll die. Which, when I tried saying that to Maggie, my (laughs) six-year-old... As the best way to cope with crying, didn't go down particularly well. But that's sort of what it is. Has she ever flowed since? <laughs> she doesn't speak to me. It's, it's fine. Um, different types of bombs. You've said IED. Improvised explosive device. Right, okay. So that's that's your most common... That's like a terrorist bomb. It's like a homemade bomb. And when you say homemade bomb, yeah. how easy is it to actually... Like, could I make a bomb out of anything in my house? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, we'll probably find something in the studio now if you want to <laughs> rustle up something. Your there. eyes lit up immediately. <laughs> like, oh, look now, they've got some good gear in here. How big do you want to make it? Yeah. Oh. No, I mean, to be honest with you, um, you know, household chemicals, the stuff you've got in your garage, you could probably make something explosive out of it. I, I sometimes work as an expert witness and sometimes feel guilty because I think if they wanted to convict somebody and, and got me in there and said, right, has this guy got anything that you can make into an explosive? Then, you know, anybody could be banged to rights. You know, your granny could be banged to rights because she's, well, especially your granny, you know, with all the baking ingredients they've got. <laughs> so, yeah. Are there other types, specific types of bomb that you go, oh, well, that's a, like with ice creams, for example. Yes. I go, oh, that's a Solero, <laughs> that's a Twister, or, you know, that's a Cornetto, which is more harder with it. Are there different types of bombs that you could go, well, that's an IED, that's a... Tutti fruity and a near pot. Yeah, so basically you've got conventional munitions, which are like factory made ones, all the things that all the different armies and you know armed forces around the world use. And then you've got improvised ones that usually terrorists and criminals use. And then within those, you've got timed command initiated and, and uh, booby traps, victim operated. So it's either on a timer or it's got a radio control firing switch of some sorts or it's a booby trap. So those are the ones we do mostly in, uh, in, in Iraq. Is it obvious it's a timed one? Because the cliche in my head, Chris, is the sort of bomb <laughs> that we see in multiple James Bond films where we have a nice countdown clock, usually red LEDs, and the number is counting down, and it's usually fixed at one or two seconds to go. Yeah, yeah I've never seen a, a flashing LED timer, and I've never seen curly-whirly wires. There's always curly-whirly wires in the yeah. bomb. In the, where the fuck did they get all these ideas from then? If that's not real, that's fucking annoying. All these films I've watched. Imagine my shock when I did my first one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so if it hasn't got a countdown screen, how do you know it's a timer one and how do you know how long is left on the timer? So sometimes it does have a countdown screen, but just not flashing red LEDs, you okay. know what I mean? Yeah, it's, not, it's like normal black and white kitchen timer type stuff. Um, but no, quite often they're mechanical timers. And they're rascals as well, because what they do is they remove the actual timer switch, you know, the bit with the numbers on, so you can't see how much is left. Oh, yeah, that's quite cheeky. Oh, that's so cheeky. They're not playing ball. <laughs> so there ball. could be like three hours for it to, for you to solve it before it goes off. It could be 20 seconds. Exactly, yeah. <gasps> yeah. So that's why we usually send robots down to those. And if you're using a robot, just describe to me and Joe what you can see. Like, what does this robot look like and what can you see via the robot? So I suppose it's uh, like a mini tank. It's normally got sort of like hydraulic um, arms on it. Like, you know, robot arm, basically. On that, you might have a... Uh, like a metal tube that's got an explosive charge in one end and full of water, and it fires a water jet um, to smash the bomb up, but, you know, maintain all the forensics, if you like, so it doesn't contaminate the forensics because it's a water jet. Um, or it might have a shotgun um, or something like that, you know, that fires a, a projectile. And then it might have a little manipulator arm, you know, a little sort of... Like a claw. Claw, <laughs> thanks very much, yeah. <laughs> Emu, yeah, um, a little claw. And yeah, so you could, you know, take it apart, move it around, not really move it around. You you never move devices around, never move bombs around. Once you've shot it, smashed it to pieces, then you can start moving the components. So yeah, robots, um, but it's like a very miniaturised version of a tank, I guess. And you're using basically like a remote control, are you, with a little video screen or something? Yeah, there's normally a couple of uh, cameras, or several cameras sometimes on the the robot. Colour and black and white, zoom, pan and tilt, so it's got its old CCTV suite. Um, But interestingly, the ones we used to use in the army... It's like a million pound robots, but there was no sighting system. So we used to get a bit of plastic masking tape, you know, the black and white masking tape, and we'd cut it into a sight and then tape it to the front of the weapon system. So when it touched the bomb, you know, you knew you were an inch away from the bomb. So a million, million pound system and, uh, yeah, using a bit of black masking tape to, to get it to work. I'd say that's a bit of an oversight. Possible oversight. <laughs> if you're spending a million quid... Spend an extra 20 quid on the site. (laughs) (laughs) Extra 50p. Um, How do you practice doing this, though? The scale of those, say your average IED that you practice on, 
what's the sort of scale of explosion you get out of that? Um, I suppose the, the most common ones that we, we do, there's a, a, an Islamic State one called a VS500, and it's a big anti-vehicle, anti-personnel mine. So you imagine a wash-it-up bowl. Um, it's that sort of size. Big old, big old hefty bomb. And I've done hundreds of those in the last couple of years. There's a school, a bomb disposal school in, uh, in the Midlands, um, a military one. So you do all your training there. They've got a whole mock-up of different towns and different sort of, you know, urban and rural setups. And they have a, a person in the army whose sole job is to be a terrorist and make improvised explosive devices, put out all the devices like a terrorist would do. So you go through all that sort of training, but on inert, you know, non-live devices. And then in, in Iraq, where we all live, We've got a, a villa there and we have them all buried around the villa. Again, inert training devices. So every time we come back from leave, we, uh, you know, we do an assessment to make sure we're all still good to go and haven't forgotten what we're doing. And then every six months we, uh, we do four different devices, you know, at random, uh, make sure we're all still not getting any skill fade, basically. So that school in the Midlands, did you say? It was, there's not been any, I presume there's not been any fuck-ups. They do it in a position where you're like... It's as real as it gets, but yeah, yeah. we can't afford to actually live live. No, use live weapons to shoot them, but they won't use live uh, live IEDs, no. No, they'll put little flash bulbs on there oh. um, and sound units. But what you do before that, you do the conventional, you know, the, the factory stuff that I told you about, the normal conventional munitions. So you do live ones of those. So you do actual live explosives. And, and I think the very first one I ever did, I messed up. And with these bombs, do you get almost trends, Chris, where... Like one year, the terrorists might be designing bombs in a particular way, and then the next year they change it up. So you're dealing with something totally different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they run out of material sometimes. So uh, Islamic State started in Iraq, and then they went further north, and they went across the border into Syria. And you can see the devices start to change. The same type of device, but the materials change as it went into Syria, as they ran out of materials and, and you know, sourced new different materials. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're always changing, basically. So everyone knows the first principles, but you've always got to sort of... Uh, you never know exactly what you're dealing with until, until it's over and done with, basically. I'm getting very hot and sweaty <laughs> just thinking of the process of having to be a diffuser of those bombs. I think we should have a little break. I won't put a timer on or anything. <laughs> All right, we'll just have a little break. It's okay. So those were the adverts. Um, Chris, do you find when you get back from Iraq, you live in a nice little town, does it feel really weird going around and just popping into Waitrose for your milk, doing ordinary things? When you're sort of living in a different world, effectively... And you see, you know, you see poverty, hardship, you know, people really struggling, refugees who've lost their homes and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, you watch Sky News or whatever and you see some of the reporting or you hear someone complaining because Waitrose has run out of quinoa, you know, and they're proper kicking off. And you sort of think, you know, you need to get a life. But, yeah, you just got to remind yourself that you are the freak and everybody else is normal and you're coming back into what we call normality here. So it just takes a little bit of time, but not long. You mentioned earlier about serving in Northern Ireland, was it? Yes. What Talk to me about the difference between the bombs that were used in Northern Ireland compared to the ones in Iraq. In Northern Ireland, the IRA was the most technically advanced. They were the most technically advanced bomb makers anywhere in the world. They would go and sort of uh, exchange their bomb-making prowess with other terror groups who would give them drugs and arms and, all, and, and big sums of money because they were the best in the world. So we sort of cut our teeth with them and generations of our bomb techs, you know, pitted their wits against generations of IRA bomb makers, if you like. And we all learned our tradecraft there. When I went to Iraq um, in 2004, it was a year after the insurgency started. And within 12 months of that insurgency starting, the Iraqi bomb makers had superseded the level of technical sophistication what? that the IRA achieved in 25 years prior to that. So the IRA were the best in the world, 12 months in, in Iraq, and they'd superseded it, you know. So usually it evolves and they get more and more difficult, really. So is that when you say the best at bomb making, do you mean that it's hardest for you to solve or that they're hardest to find? Just, I suppose, really the most technically sophisticated. So the components that they use, you know, the, the quality control that they use, I suppose. Yeah, and, and to a degree, the, uh, the difficulty dealing with them. You must have the knowledge... Right, this is never going to happen because you you seem like a good man. But you must have the knowledge. If you wanted to turn to the dark side, you could be the most advanced bomb maker. Yeah, I mean, 
my daughter um, the other day was telling me about her new boyfriend. I said, um, well, make sure you say, say to him, you know, if he breaks your heart, I'm going to break his legs. And she was like, Dad, you're a loudspeaker. <laughs> um, but normally the plan is, you know, if they come around the house or something, I'll be there, you know, making up some training bombs or something. Proper you know? <laughs> 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 them up. Yeah. Just saying, uh, I've got 12 bottles of bleach. Yeah. <laughs> some fertiliser. I've got some curly wires. Because you curly need to wire, make yeah. it like, exactly. you know, believable. <laughs> Nice flicking countdown clock in red. I've also red got um, some sticks of dynamite that I'm going to wrap in. Uh... That say TNT down <laughs> the side. Love it, yeah. I, d I don't think I'd like to have you as my father-in-law, if I'm honest. You're quite a unit yourself, yeah. <laughs> oh, you sound like I could survive one of your bombs. <laughs> oh! Okay, thank no, you. No, I wouldn't like you as my father-in-law. Oh, right, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. Um, some more research, Tom. Mm. Do you know what the biggest nuclear bomb ever dropped was the one on Nagasaki was bigger than the one on Hiroshima? Sorry, what was the second word you just said? Hiroshima, Hiroshima. Okay, which one are we going with? Nagasaki was bigger. Was one called Big Boy? Well, according to my research, and Chris, you might have to correct me if I'm wrong. In fact, you're definitely going to have to correct me because I don't know how to say the first word. <laughs> Tazar? Zar. Zar. Why have they put a fucking T at the start then? <laughs> right, we're going with Zar. We're going with it's called the Zar bomb. Yeah. And it says it was yielding an explosion of 50 megatons, which is 3,300 times more powerful than the 15 kilotons bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Wait, so when was this dropped and why? The Russians, yeah, the Russians just, they love a nuke. They love nukes. So uh, they built the biggest ever nuclear, nuclear bomb. And yeah, as Joe said, it was just... Massive. So it was never used. It was just there to. Well, yeah. They, no, they did training. Yeah, they used it. Did they? Yeah, they set it off, but in like a big Area Fifty One version in the Soviet Union, and it was actually meant to be a hundred. It was meant to be a hundred <laughs> megatons, which is a hundred thousand tons, kilotons. Oh, keep going. But they halved it. They they de bottled it. Well, they went, that's going to be too big. So it might be environmentally yeah, unfriendly. That might be a bit, that might might be be stupid, a bit too lads. big. Yeah. So they, they attached it to a giant parachute because they had to build this special plane to take it up and then they put a big parachute on it because they had to fly away before it blew up. <laughs> and it obliterated an abandoned village 34 miles away from where it was dropped. What? You're like, what the fuck? 5.25 magnitude earthquake... And it was 37 miles high. What was? Mushroom cloud. And the, the explosion like broke the stratosphere. Wow. It, <laughs> it broke the stratosphere? No, it didn't break as in it, it went through it. I think it did. Is that what is the stratosphere? <laughs> um, why? So all these tests on all this list of the top 10 nuclear bombs that they think, and it would be America, America test, test, such a name, test, Russia... Why the fuck are they testing all these bombs? What's the point in having... Why do they want the biggest bomb in the world? I don't understand why anybody would want them. Uh, maybe one. You know, have one, just so everyone knows you're in business and, uh, you know, it's a deterrent then, isn't it? If you're going to fire one at me, then, then you could potentially get one back. But I don't understand why they need enough to destroy the entire planet that many times over. Is it cocks on the table? Is that what we're talking about here? Well, cocks or vaginas. Or vaginas, yeah. We, we're... Equal. Although people make less of a deal about having a massive vagina than they do about having a massive cock, don't they? I have no idea. <laughs> I have literally no idea actually, how we yeah, got yeah. vaginas on the table. It's good. With some dicks. Anyway. <laughs> uh... Chris, you know, sometimes we will hear stories on the news and someone will say that an unexploded World War II bomb has been found. From your perspective, is this A, massively exciting because it's an ancient bomb and you've not done them before or is it be terrifying because it's like retro bomb action you don't know how this thing works but a bit of each i suppose yeah any uxo unexploded ordnance they've, they've got a manual for it they've kept the manuals that's yeah, good there's that's always good. manuals you know and stuff. you're always trained how to do that sort of stuff the problem is they're ne nearly always in fully urbanized areas so you've got to evacuate big big swathes of people evacuating people from houses isn't that easy um, especially doing it quickly. You've got to find somewhere for them to go. You've got to reroute the aircraft, reroute boats if you're near the, the coast or rivers and stuff. Traffic, close down motorways, and it's just a bit of a noise. And then you've got to try and make it safe. And before you make it safe, you've got to somehow tamp it down just in case it accidentally goes bang. So you might be covering it with lo loads and loads of, you know, big sort of water sacks, sandbags, that sort of stuff. So it's a very logistically tricky uh, job to do. 
and sometimes it goes wrong. I guess as well, because you all the time, let's say it's a World War II bomb, so it might have been sitting there since the 1940s. You've got no idea of how it might have degraded over time. No, there's, there's, you know, it's an interesting point as well, actually, because uh, there's a ship off the Isle of, um, Isle of Sheppey, Montgomery it's called, and it's got loads of explosives there from the Second World War. And apparently, over time, the nitroglycerin on there has become super sensitive. <gasps> so if you basically, you know, accidentally crashed into it, it would cause the whole thing to go bang. And they say a tidal wave that would uh, completely engulf the Isle of Sheppey as well. What? Some would we say it's no bad this. thing. But Where's, Where is the Isle of Sheppey? As the mouth of the Thames spreads out, it's sort of there, isn't it? As the Thames goes into the North Sea. North Kent, yeah. Right, okay. Couldn't have said that. Canvey's <laughs> <laughs> the Essex Sheppey. The mouth of the Thames. <laughs> what do you mean the mouth? Where's the arse then? Oxfordshire. <laughs> <laughs> Who decided that the arse was in Oxfordshire and the mouth is Isle of Sheppey? Subjective, isn't it? it it's an interesting point, though. Not that interesting in the slightest, actually. Why have they still left it then? Then why have they? Why don't they? Because it's too dangerous it's too to dangerous move. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Could so, it still go off though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every year they talk about doing an operation to uh, to try and clear it, um, well, and then every year they say, "Oh, we'll just leave it." Right. I want to talk about um, what's your favourite movie bomb scene. Have you got one? No. Brilliant. Why? Because they're shit compared to the real world. Yeah, yeah, just uh, yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah, but okay. What about Saving Private Ryan? When uh, all right, yeah, Tom no. Hanks. He says to the he You're says right. to his team, he's like, right, guys, we're gonna have to make some sticky bombs. And they're like, what the fuck is a sticky bomb? They're like, what you don't know what a sticky bomb is? Like, it's in the manual. They're like, and then one of the guys is going through the manual, like, I literally don't know what the fuck. This is not a sticky bomb. You've made it up. And they take all their socks off. They put. I'm going to say C4. What's C4? Plastic explosive. They put that in the sock. Then yeah. they dip it in some... Axle grease. Axle grease. Yeah. Put a little charge on the end. Good to go. Light it. Fucking lob it, lob it on the tank wheels. Do you not remember this scene? No. Oh, fucking Sounds hell. good though. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 100%... Factually correct as well, yeah. Oh, so that's a good one. Yeah, that's a brilliant one. I wish right. I'd thought of that, to be honest okay. with you, yeah. <laughs> that's a um, really Jason Bourne does good ones, actually. Okay. Why are he so good? They're authentic, basically, you know. So if he gets in a, in a spot of... Bot- James Bond, for example, presses a button and turns the car invisible. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. Jason Bourne, <laughs> that's a fair he point. like, you know, he's in, he's in a bit of a pickle and uh, he looks around the kitchen and he's like, right, there's a newspaper, there's a toaster, um, there's a gas oven. Um, roll up the newspaper, stick it in the toaster... Stick the gas oven on, climb out the window, close the window after him as well, you know, to seal it all up. And then the gas dissipates, the toaster newspaper, and uh, he's made a big time bomb. And then as all the baddies come in there, they get blown to pieces. So that's one of my favourite. Touch. Um, yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. What about um, Four Lions? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he's got all the um, equipment to make a bomb. This is my favourite bomb scene, this one. And then he's, they're out in the sticks and he jumps over the wall with these carrier bags of explosives to go and make some bombs. And he just blows up a load, he dies and blows up a load of sheep with him. Probably one of my favourite scenes ever. Was the, also the one where he's, yes, he says, I've face. gone and bought all the stuff. What do you mean you've gone and bought all the stuff? He said, well, I just bought, can I have 12 bottles of bleach, please? And he's like, what the fuck, mate? You're making it so obvious. He's like, no, I use my IRA voice. He's like, why the fuck are you using an IRA? He's, he's got a fucking giant beard. He's like, no, I used to, I use my girl voice as well. And he's like, you've got a fucking beard, mate. He's like, I just, Clark, try I've got a bleach, please. It's one of my favourite ever. Not realistic. <laughs> totally, yeah. All right, it is. Brilliant, yeah. <laughs> totally realistic. Um, what about this one? Have you seen Man on Fire? Yes, yeah. What about the Anus bomb? Tell us more. This is a, a remote, this, this is a re- remote one, so it's a, a, a remote type of IED. Mm-hmm. And what he's done is he's put a little bit of C4. And is there any? Other, is there like a C3? There's a P4. What's P4? Um, it's the one that the uh, the British use. Okay. And then C4 is the American one. Oh. How did we get to four? There probably was a one, two, and three, but probably before we just five. settled on four. Yeah, I think fours are just a nice number. No, nice number. So he puts this little bit of C4 in a little capsule. Tiny little thing, just you know, like a you know, like a Kinder egg. Oh yeah, you know the toy bit. Yeah. Puts that in there, wraps it in a condom. Oh, the what do you call the guy who's getting it done to him? The victim. The victim. <laughs> there we go. He's not a victim. He's a piece of shit. Actually, you know, he's this corrupt officer. The victim is unconscious. Why is he unconscious? Because he's hit him over the head. Okay, with something. Yeah, 
And then he strapped his hands to the bonnet of the car and he's inserted said Kinder Bueno, a Kinder <laughs> Egg condom with device up his anuse. Yeah. And then he's woke him up and he says, mate, you've got this in your thing and I've set it as a timer on my watch. Here's the time. You've got three minutes to tell me who you got. And the bloke's fucking shitting himself. I mean, actually, in hindsight... That would have been a good tactic. He, that would have been better. Yeah. Shit out the bomb. If you're there. But then when you're so nervous, I guess you, it's hard. You, you might clinch as well if you were nervous, wouldn't you? Yeah. And he was... Anyway, shit. He's, he's scared. And then the three minutes is up and Denzel Washington walks away from it all. Or Creasy, as he's called in it. And the bloke's anus just fucking explodes. <laughs> and it goes like everywhere. That's that my favourite. Something like it happened... Happened for real, actually. What? You remember Al-Qaeda? Yeah. So in Saudi Arabia, they had a, a program where you could become a reformed Al-Qaeda bod. You know, go and say, I'm going to be a good person now. And at the end of the, uh, the program, you go and go to a ceremony. So, um, and I can't remember his name, which is terrible. There's a bomb maker who was like really, you know, world-class notoriety, made the printer toner cartridge bombs that... The underpants bomb. Sorry, hang on. Shoe bombs. The printer toner cartridge bomb. Yeah, there was a there was some bombs in Stansted a few years ago where they put them in printer toner cartridges, and they were going to blow them up over the uh, you know, over the Atlantic and whatever. And they landed at Stansted, and then they went to go and find them and clear them all and all that sort of stuff. But this guy was very clever at hiding bombs in in sort of everyday items, and uh, his brother went on this program um, to be a reformed Al Qaeda operator. So he talked his brother into an anus bomb and the person that would greet you at the end of your program was the, uh, I think, the Minister of Interior of the Saudi royal family, you know, the Saudi government. So um, he basically had this anus bomb. They got a miniature um, telephone and popped that up there as well. It's a big ass. And uh, <laughs> he, um, he basically waited in line, met the, uh, the, the Minister of Interior and then... Asked to borrow his phone. Rang his own arse rang, phone. Rang, rang his arse phone. <laughs> blew himself to pieces. But luckily, there wasn't enough explosive in there. So his body sort of acted as a buffer. And it shouldn't really laugh, but blew his whole torso up and he got stuck in, in the ceiling. What? Um, and the Saudi um, minister was completely, obviously, a bit of claret on him and stuff. But I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But imagine that that's your brother that made that and said, just pop this up your uh, up your anus, as you say. I know it's... we say we shouldn't laugh, but that's actually one of the occasions you should fucking laugh. <laughs> He's also got quite good reception up his anus, hasn't he? Why can't you get signal from your arsehole? I don't know, can you? Have you never tried it? <laughs> <laughs> What's the signal like up on anus? I guess we'll have to try it. See how many uh, bars signal you get. Uh, the phone of a noose. <laughs> that sounds like something like an Egyptian god. <laughs> phone I'm of the Anus. <laughs> Welcome to the phone of the Anus Valley. Oh, fuck me, dead. How do we go from this to then asking this next question? <laughs> I can't ask that without... Let me see the question. It's the, la- it's the second to last one. We can't segue like that. Let's have a question in between. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. This show is sponsored by the following excellent people. Tinker Taylor Soldier, Cy Wadison. Tears for Piers, it's Kate Piers. The Sound Man, Ollie Soundy. When Beth Parry met Sally. Alan the Burj Khalifa, running up that Derrick Hill. Super Jack Travis. The Duracell Bunny, Robert Duro. Ben Wharton, Neil Stewart, Tommy Ryan. The Bounty Hunter, Alistair Bounty. Oh-ha, it's Marcus Partridge. Wiley Old Fox, Dave Wiley, King Louis Morgan, and Double Denim, Sally Wenham. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor, and grow the show today. I want to know, actually, Joe, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, go on, yeah. Because <laughs> we've heard from Chris what Chris has to go through. Yeah. And often... <laughs> The joy and the fascination with doing the show is thinking, how would we do... There's a fascination to this show. (laughs) That's maybe too strong a word. How would we get on doing the job of the person we're chatting to? So I'm looking at you as Joe Marler, bomb disposal specialist. (laughs) Mm. Are you decent at your job? Uh, Let's think about this. We spoke about it being in teams. Yes. So it's what, six to eight members in a team. So you're the boss of that team, I presume. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm Chris. I'm the equivalent of Chris in our team. Okay, you promoted yourself to the top, okay. Well, it's my team. Okay. Yeah. 
it's the fantasy team. We can make our own. Yeah. Thing. And you're going to be. So you have a what? You have a boss. A sec, do you have a second in command? No. Uh, yeah, you do. You have a team leader of the searchers. So yeah, he'd be the second in command. Yeah. Okay. You you you're not going to be second in command. Thanks. You're going to be just one of the searchers. Just getting your fags. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be a searcher. Is that all right? Crawling on your belly, mm-hmm. dick in the dirt, not sweating because yeah. you've got some weird condition. Yeah. Because I've infor- I've employed you because of the condition. Because of the condition, that was my go-to. <laughs> um, so I think all in all. I'd get on all right. How do you think you would get on being that that person? Do you think you could do it? Do you think you've got the resilience? Have you got the courage to go, I'm going to go diffuse that in order to save lives around me? That takes a lot to be able to do that. But also, in fairness, knowledge dispels fear, doesn't it? If you know something and you've done it again and again and again and again, it's easy. You think about driving our cars, you know, they're super lethal, deadly weapons, really but you don't think twice about getting in your car and driving it. If you'd never driven one before and you're told, right, you know, drive around London in this car, you'd be bricking yourself, wouldn't you? Yeah, so if, if you've got enough knowledge, then uh, you'd be fine. All, all jokes aside from, when I was thinking about bombs, I think of them as cowardly. Yeah. In terms of warfare, my little knowledge of what I have of it, but you've got to be a fucking absolute melt and a coward. I'm, I'm the same. I'm the same. I've, I've interrogated bomb makers and uh, I've been literally sitting as, as, as close as we are and having to sort of, you know, there's been someone else speaking to them first, interviewing them, you know, someone else speaking to them, they've said nothing. And then I've sort of gone technical on them, you know, almost geek to geek, if you like, to a bomb maker and had a pistol on my thigh and just been, you know, making friendship, you know, finding empathy, you know, breaking down the barriers and actually thinking, you know, and I'm not a violent person, but thinking all I really want to do is, uh, is take this pistol out and shoot you because they are the most evil, twisted people I've ever, ever come across, to be honest with you. Because exactly as you say, Joe, they're, they're just cowards. It's a really indiscriminate, evil way to, uh, to harm people. You know, because you never know who's going to be on the receiving end of that bomb, basically. So they're evil. And were you involved in the 7-7 London bombings? What was your involvement with that? Yeah, I'd, um, I'd got involved in researching suicide terrorism as it happened and then um i was working in an intelligence job in central london and when the first reports came through um i got called in to see the chief of defense intelligence and i actually thought i was in trouble you know that was the usual reason i'd go in to see <laughs> someone at that level and uh he confirmed what had happened you know and said we want you to go over to cobra which is the cabinet office briefing rooms where all the sort of you know the cabinet go and uh, and, and make all the decisions in in time of a national crisis or emergency so, um, yeah, went over to Downing Street, you know, through this sort of labyrinth of corridors and, uh, and then rocked up there and, and went in there as an advisor. And it was, uh, did it on 7-7 and again on 21-7 when it happened a couple of weeks later as well. And that was really surreal, actually, yeah, because I had family, like many people that were in London or worked in London or lived in London, you know, had family that were living here as well. And it was that surreal moment where you sort of, you know, you phone up your relatives and say, right, are you OK? Don't go anywhere, stay at home, whatever. And then, yeah, and then you get to work and... Um, and we, yeah, tried to track them down. But obviously, they were all dead pretty much by the time we uh, discovered who they were. On the way here, it was late getting here. And it was partly because they'd shut the tube. And they said, oh, there's been an emergency. And there was quite a lot of police around. I, d- I think there was nothing major. But it just flicked my mind to the fear that people would have had on that day yeah. or similar days and the panic, all from someone deciding right, this is how I'm going to make my point. And it just goes back to the point I made earlier again. You fucking piece of shit. Yeah. To do that to people, and you go, well, that's why I'm I'm grateful to, oh, wow, this is such a blow smoke, lick-ass moment. <laughs> that's why I'm grateful for people like yourself and the knowledge that you and others have to stop that as much as you can. I don't mean specifically that those sorts of bombings, but you, the work you're doing out in Iraq and and previously done, you're saving lives, and it's a shame that you have to exist. Yeah, but I think it's brilliant that you do. So, thanks, mate. Well, that's very kind, mate. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been brilliant having you on. Thank you so much, mate. Thank you, mate. Yeah, it's Cheers. been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I've never done an interview like this before. It's <laughs> absolutely superb, brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've never done an interview like this before. <laughs> I think you'd make a much better bomb disposal expert. Why? 
I don't know, there's just something about you that it's just cooler. In the moment, you just make the right decision. And I'd be there going, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> no, fuck this! This is, this is bad! Just run! Get out of here! There's bombs everywhere. Just get as far as way as possible. I'd panic. That would, that would, would set you? in. And listening to Crit, he's just so cool. It's like, it didn't bat an eyelid, really. Do you know what it reminded me of, Joe? You know when you get on a flight, and if the captain were to sound excitable and lunatic, you'd shit yourself. But the pilot spends a lot of time speaking in a unnaturally calm voice. And as a result, you're reassured that everything will be perfectly fine on the flight. Yeah, I guess it like that. He has to have that role, doesn't he? Do you think there would be an interior monologue where you'd be lying down on your belt buckle, penis in the dirt, etc., etc., and you'd be talking to your your crew and be like, "Yeah, we're just going to click the red wire now, and that'll be the bomb disposed." Yeah. And in your head you go, "It might be the blue one. <laughs> it might be the blue one." Panic! Shit! Fuck! No, I really enjoyed Chris. I thought he was brilliant. Joe, and if people would like to see Chris in action, is there a way they could do so? Uh, yeah, you'll have to join the army, sign up to one of his teams, and fly out to Iraq with him. And if they want to do it, but more if you don't quickly, want to do that, you could just go on YouTube, search the Joe Marler show, and you can watch it all. Chris, what I love it—he was quite handsome as well, wasn't he? Handsome man, really nice-looking human. Superb, Joe. And if people would like another podcast to listen to before we return next Wednesday, let's talk about the George Groves Boxing Club. The George Groves, but how does he talk? Hammersmith born. Oh, mate. <laughs> He's not Dick Van Dyke. The George Groves Boxing Club. Ding, ding. That's not bad. The George Groves Boxing Club, Joe, will tell you all the things you ever wanted to know about the fight game. <sighs> I like the sound of that. It's really good. Simply search for the George Groves Boxing Club wherever you get your podcasts. Lovely. Who's on our next episode, please, Tom? Joe. It's a reality TV star. Lovely. See you then. Bye. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.